Everybody, this is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, and we're sponsored by the Improv Aru Camping Retreat. Now, are you interested in camping under the stars while attending improv workshops with a really supportive, genuine community? Well, if the answer is yes, then you got to check out Improvaru Camping Retreat, taking place February 18th through the 21st at the beautiful Camp Bro Ryan, just north of Tampa, Florida. Improvaru features top instructors from the I.O., the Groundlings, the Magnet, and more. Registration has now been extended until February 3rd. It's only $150, and there are just a few spots left. Visit postdineroconvo.com slash improvaru for all the details. That's post dinnerconvo.com slash improvaru. We are also sponsored by the Chicago Improv Festival. Hey, improvisers from all over America, do you want to perform at this year's Chicago Improv Festival? It's May 2nd through the 8th, and it's going to be a blast. They're currently taking submissions in seven different artistic categories. So whatever type of show you do is a show they want to see. They're taking online submissions from now until February 29th. For more information or to send a submission, go to chicagoimprovfestival.org. That's Chicago improvfestival.org. This episode is also sponsored by Femprovisor Fest 16, which will be taking place April 28th through May 1st in beautiful downtown San Francisco. The festival is now accepting submissions from diverse all-lady improv ensembles, comics, and performance artists. Application for all-lady acts will be accepted until February 6th. Submit through the National Improv Network. Hurry, you don't have much time. For more information, go to femprovisorfest.com. That's Femprovisorfest.com. Guess what we got for you today? No, no, I'm, I'm being sincere here. Guess what? You you didn't even let me finish. We got another great episode of Improv Nerd, and our guest today is Mick Napier. He is the founder and artistic director of the Annoyance Theater here in Chicago. He has directed a lot of main stage reviews at the Second City, where he is an artistic consultant. He is also the author of a new book, Behind the Scenes, Improvising Long Form. And I wanted to sit down with Mick in this episode and discuss some of the concepts in this book, like giving yourself permission to be funny in long form, how to make it more appealing to a wider audience, and how to get yourself in the right frame of mind to improvise. Before we get to this episode with Mick, as you know, Lauren and I are expecting a baby girl at the end of June of this year. And last weekend, we finally made it official to the rest of the world. And you do that today by posting a picture on Facebook. So I went out and got a little plastic baby doll and we wrote a sign that said, real baby coming soon. And we both held the baby with the sign. And, and it's true. It proves what these social media experts say, that if you post something on Facebook with a picture, you're going to get a bigger response. And we got over a 1,000 likes, which is great. And it, it didn't happen instantly. I, kept, I was obsessed because I'm really sick about this stuff. I'm like, Lauren, you think we're going to get 1,000 likes? And about 48 hours later, we had hit 1,000 likes. And this is how my mind thinks. What percentage of those likes will actually buy the baby a gift? Because that's why we 
announce it on Facebook because Lauren's like, we're going to get gifts. And I'm all about the gifts. I'm into the gifts way more than Lauren's into the gifts. And we've already gotten gifts. Lauren's mother, for Lauren's birthday, got her a crib for the baby and a dresser for the baby's room. Now, when I saw the dresser and the crib in the store, it was assembled. But when we got the boxes today, it was clear to me that you have to assemble them. See, I promised myself when I was 38, I went out and I bought a bookcase at Target. And I brought it back to my apartment and I opened it. And I'm like, I am too old to assemble furniture. Because for me, that was the sign that I was becoming an adult. Adults don't assemble furniture. They just go out and buy something that's already assembled. So I feel I am way too old to be assembling baby furniture. But the truth is we're having a baby and there's going to be a lot of things that I think I'm way too old to do. So enough about me. Here it is, the Mick Napier episode, and I hope you get a lot out of what he has to say about long form. I did. So here it is. Enjoy. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd, oh yeah. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd. So Mick, thank you so much for doing this. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, So for people who don't know, uh, you know, everybody who's out there who listens to the podcast, can you describe the annoying style of improv? Yeah, I can. I think it's a style of improv that... uh, where we're encouraged to make a very strong choice at the top of the scene and kind of take care of ourselves. And it's pretty character-based, I would say, and pretty point-of-view-based as well. And as far as the annoyance sensibility, it's rather subversive and kind of an anything can go, you know. I let anyone say whatever they like on, on this stage, short of being racist or homophobic or hitting someone, you know. But it's a very free environment. Um, I knew you... Um I think we first met at the at the I.O. where uh, you were on the Harrow team, Grind and Punishment. Yeah. And I think before that, you had studied at Second City and then studied with Del Close. Yep. And uh, how did you develop this your particular method of improvisation? I think, you know, I really just w- was really wanting to watch what worked uh, in improvisation. There was a lot of things that, that I was told that help other people a great deal in improvisation, but I couldn't latch on to. And there are things like listen and support your partner and, and um, yes and. And while I do believe those things, they weren't enough for me to latch on to in order to inform me about what I was going to do in the scene. So I started searching for what do people actually do when they improvise well. And I started looking at people um, improvise, and I noticed when people were improvising well what they were doing. And sometimes it's hard to notice what people are doing when they're improvising well because you're too busy enjoying it. So I really took an objective standpoint for a lot, for a lot of time, a lot, a lot of years, and observed what people did. And I noticed that people, when they improvised well, they did make a strong choice. And when they did make a strong choice, that, that is what supported their partner. And, of course, you're going to listen and all of that, but, yeah. And how did you, because, uh, you, you know, I was at, at the Annoyance back in the 90s when you were first starting to teach there. Yeah. Were you, were you doing, because I, I don't know how you developed your style. Were you trying it out in classes and stuff? or? I was. I was trying um, different things out. I would try an exercise that would fail or succeed. Um, and 
then I would uh, just evolve things over time, change things, tinker with stuff and all that. And I felt bad sometimes because I would experiment with things and they didn't go very well. And I would try to have to weasel my way out of it with a class or kind of talk around stuff in order to get to a point or a takeaway that made sense. You know, I used for many, many years, I was just telling a friend this the other day, um, for many years when I taught, I used the words in lieu of to mean um, because of that instead of instead of. And I, I remember having a student point that out. The one thing that I, <laughs> I remember was this, 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 and it was, you like reinvented improv for me in terms of this strong declaration. Come out, don't worry about taking care of your partner. If you're, if you're, if you're a big character or whatever, or angry or happy or whatever, keep doing that, and in effect, you're taking care of your partner. Can you explain that a little? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I can. Um, I noticed that when I was on stage, when someone, if I were improvising with you, and you did make a strong choice, and it doesn't have to be a loud choice or an angry choice or anything like that. It could be subtle, but if it were a real move, a real choice, I felt supported because now I'm on stage with someone who's exhibiting power behind their improvisation and choice as opposed to someone who's living in judgment of themselves and in their fear, which isn't very supportive to me. So that's where that kind of came from. And I noticed that when I did that, people seemed to be supported as well. And it could be anything from, you know, get the fuck out of the room to I love you. It could be any choice at all, but that you make the choice is what is supportive and you believe just keep heighten, <clears throat> heightening that choice. I do, or opening opening up the world with it a little bit, finding different ways of you know so exploring if that. So if you started with "I love you," what would heightening be, and something like that? I think you would do and say all of the things that would exhibit one which loves another person mm-hmm. in a given whatever context that was. And I think that if you filter everything through that, you know, so everything around you in the scene, including your partner's words, your partner's actions, and the objects that you create, your environment, your location, all of those things, and if, if you're really you know, hyper-aware, can be used as tools to filter through the idea of I love you. How many ways can I exhibit that? Because I really do believe that, that, in essence, a good scene is centered in one thing. I really do believe that it's around one thing. One simple concept. I think so, that converge or, or that are um, created by the convergence of the two point of views on stage or the three point of views on stage, yeah. Um, and how much is your math? You love math. Right? I do. I really do. And you also like physics, right? I do. How, how much does that go into your, your improv theories? I think it really did used to a lot, especially when I was constructing shows at Second City. I'm very mathematical with running orders and sketch comedy and all that. And I, I look at comedy way too mathematically, <laughs> and it prevents me from enjoying it often, which is why I don't watch comedy very often. Um, but, yeah, I do look at it that way. I, I, it's it's a real weird thing improvisation because it does it's a, a true left brain and right brain you know collusion you have to really balance both of those arenas so the math that logical part um, sometimes I think that's what drove me to create the school I created with improvisation because I was always in my head and and still am sometimes I improvised with Susan Messing a couple of weeks ago and I thought I was really in my head. And a lot of that, a lot of that making a strong choice is not only to support a partner, but to get me, Mick Napier, out of my head because I, I think too much as well. 
Where did you develop, because the thing that I've always admired in you is, one is, you're a leader, you know, and, and you're, you're willing to execute your vision, get other people behind you to help with your vision. Where, where, did, you, where did you learn that skill? The Boy Scouts of America. Are you serious? <laughs> Dead serious. I know you were an Eagle Scout. I am an Eagle Scout. And what did they give you that I, that I didn't get? Well, I tell you, there was a guy named Bill Harbour, and he is a great guy, and he's a principal out there somewhere. Um, and he uh, moved to our school system in the 70s, and we didn't have a scout troop in our town. And Bill had long hair, and he looked like a hippie you know, mm-hmm. in the 70s. But he was a teacher. And I remember the very first day when he called my name, I held up a peace sign and said, peace, and he laughed. Um, Were you kind of giving him a dig? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Were you so. a smart ass kid? I was a smart okay. ass. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so I, I asked him, I got to know him eventually and learned that he had had a Boy Scout troop in another town. So I asked him if he would create a Boy Scout troop in Trenton, Ohio, and he did. And because it was a new troop, I became what's called the senior patrol leader. And the senior patrol leader is, a, is the person that's ahead of the troop, that's a scout. So that's usually something you get after being a scout for three or four years. But it immediately put me in that position and immediately put me in that leadership position. And I really did learn a lot of, uh, a lot of skill sets then. I uh, began to learn about teaching. I began to learn about, because he was a teacher, and we talked about teaching a lot, and he revered teaching. And uh, I did learn a lot about um, leading people and how to affirm people, how to be kind to people, teach, all of that. Another teacher that I don't think gets enough credit, and he was, a, I know, a huge mentor to, your, to you, and that's Martin DeMott. Yeah, Martin DeMott was amazing. I used to introduce Martin as the best improvisation teacher in the world, and I had no problem introducing him as that. What made him so great? Well, I think you go into Martin's class and you leave feeling affirmed with your life in addition to uh, the skill set of improvisation. He had the ability to truly change people's lives, and he did it all the time. He did it to annoying degrees, like you're out to dinner, and he would ask the waiter or waitress, like, how's, how's your life going? What's going on with you? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm turning red, like, I, this is way too familiar, and I just want to order, you know, a steak. But he would do that uh, a lot. There's a very funny thing with Martin in um, New York. I know I've told this story before, but it's so funny, is that me and his doctor, Dr. Viroff, who's an Indian doctor, and oddly enough, Martin got to know his doctor really well, so I got to know him. So me and Martin and Dr. Viroff would go out a lot together, bizarrely. And one day we're walking in uh, the Lower West Side, and... We're walking on, and Dr. Vyroff and I are talking, and we notice that Martin has lapsed behind, and we look back, and he's talking to two cops. And he talks and talks and talks, and this conversation goes on forever. And he's just talking to two policemen on the street. So finally, Dr. Vyroff and I go back and just go back to where Martin is, and we hear this cop go, so what do you think, Frankie? Should I take these improv classes or what? <laughs> so that, that was truly Martin. He improv everywhere. Um, so you've recently uh, written a book called Beyond. Uh, it's called Beyond the Scenes: Improvising Long Form. Yeah. Um, now you're known as I would say the next the last 15 years known as a, uh, director of main stage at Second City, uh, and certainly here's shows here at the Annoyance. Why a book on long form? <laughs> it's a great question, isn't it? Yeah, knowing you, yes, it is. Um. I've got a couple more books in me. I want to write a book on directing, sketch comedy and improvisation, and I want to write a book on uh, improv games. And notice I didn't say short form. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So I knew I wanted to write this book, too, this book on long-form improvisation. And it's just, I think part of it is just it's kind of in my brain right now more than directing and stuff and just my thoughts about it and everything. And for a long time, I went up and down about whether or not I liked long form. And then I would see something I liked and like it would kind of revive my faith in it and whatnot. Um, but I just had a lot of thoughts about it, a lot of thoughts about the way we as an improv community not only improvise long form, but the way we look at long form and the way that we treat long form and the way that this this culture sometimes um, either advocates for it or prevents it from being something else it can be or evolving. So I like to look at all of that. And there's times where long form kind of like made me angry in a weird way. Like why? why? I think it. I think it's like why aren't we explaining this to our audiences enough? Why aren't we inviting them to experience this? have this experience with us enough. Well, that's something that you talk about in the book that I really liked. And that was that we are not setting up long form the way to get the most uh, out of a non-improv audience. Right. What is your, what is your, what is your, what's your theory behind that? Well, it's from watching so many people watch long form and at the end of it, they look at each other and they are asking what the fuck was that and what what the fuck just went on they have no idea and we as improvisers we don't notice it because there's usually enough improvisers in the house to affirm the experience but i've seen people look around and look at other people laughing and not know why particularly on weekends and stuff so it just became it became very uh important for me to put out there in the world that we just want to take a look at that if you just take a look at who's in your audience and you notice that there's 10 couples, then you can just tell they're off the street, then put a little more heat on your on your intro and provide a little more exposition for the experience they're going to be going through, and they're going to enjoy it a lot more. Why is that important, the introduction? So they know what game they're playing. Just as we introduce, like, let's take freeze tag, we would probably never just start playing freeze tag or say to the audience, can we have a suggestion, hammer, and then start playing freeze tag, because the first time someone said freeze, then we'd we don't. We have no idea why they said freeze. We have no idea why the two actors did freeze, and we have no idea when they're tapped out what they're going to be doing. Are they continuing the scene? We haven't. We haven't been invited to understand the roadmap for that experience that we're supposed to enjoy. Long form improvisation sometimes just says we're going to be do a bunch of unrelated scenes now. Can I have anything? And some audiences have no idea what the word improvise means, let alone unrelated scenes, let alone can I have anything? Can I have what? Do you want my wallet? What do you want from me? So I know I'm being a bit, you know, out there with that, but I really do believe that we ought to just take a check, take and check it, you know, ourselves with the way we're introducing things. So what, what do you think an effective int- introduction would be to, to, to introduce the concept of improv and then what, what, what we're about to see? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm doing a show right now that I'm really proud of here called Trigger Happy. Trigger Happy is a show, it's a long-form show, and in this show, the performers share a secret language with each other, and when the performers say or do certain things, unbeknownst to the audience, it triggers a series of choreographed events within the long-form. So it just looks like magic sometimes, like you're watching it and all of a sudden everybody just falls down, or something like that. So that's a hell of a lot for an audience member to understand. So in our introductions, we not only introduce what trigger happy is with a series of secret languages and stuff, we also 
explain what long-form improvisation is, and we also explain what improvisation is. So that kind of goes like, hi, we're going to, to improvise for you right now. We're going to make up all the words to the show that you're going to see, and we're going to do that in a long form. This is going to be a series of scenes. Some of them will relate to others. Some of them will not relate to others. Some of them may come back in time. Some won't. But it's a series of scenes that we're going to make up for you right now. And the performers share a secret language. They know a secret coded language that they're going to share with each other, unbeknownst to you. And that's going to trigger certain events to happen in the show. And I think I just consolidated it. It's even a little longer than that. The other thing that I find very refreshing in this book is you talk about it's okay to get laughs in long form. I really enjoyed read, uh, really enjoyed writing that. Mm-hmm. I really did. It came, from, it came mainly from running Second City auditions for 25 years and seeing the mindset of people that come in and the feeling of like, okay, if I just get through this, if I just do some good, good work, if I just agree, that's going to be good enough. But it isn't good enough for a Second City audition. You have to get laughs. So I, I just got tired of us hiding behind this idea that you don't have to get laughs. You don't have to get laughs, but why not? Because that's what makes it fun for well, me. Well, for you, it's, it's, it's very important to get laughs. Oh, yeah, that's why I got into this. Why is there shame in the culture of saying, I want to get laughs, or we didn't get laughs? You talk about in the book judging a good and a bad joke based I, on laughs. I know. I mean, I really think that you don't, you don't do a... Harold for 35 minutes that gets no laughs and come off and high-five each other because you had no laughs. I think that it's, I think it's very important to attack the stage with the expectation of getting the audience's laughter if that's what you desire from your improvisation because it's a psychological mindset. If you, if you have the... I think that we fear going up there, as I say in the book also, we fear going up there and getting laughed because we're told we're not supposed to joke out a scene. And we're not supposed to go for the laugh, which is a different kind of laugh, as we all know. But if you hold on to that notion as you become more advanced with your improvisation, then you get into a mindset of, I don't have to be funny, or I'm just going to do good work up there. And that equals, I'm just going to go along and listen. And doesn't mean get laughs. So when I go on stage, I have the expectation of getting getting laughs. I really want to get laughs. If I don't, it's usually a bad time. And I am also confident that I'm not going to fuck over my partner or joke out the scene or anything like that. I'm confident I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get up there and tell jokes. So that's where all of that comes from. The other thing I liked about it is you talked about getting in a specific mindset mm-hmm. to improvise. Yeah. Yeah, that's once again the psychology of when I get up there, I'm going to, I'm going to get laugh. I want to get laughs. I want to be funny. I want to be in my funny mode as opposed to be in my serious. I'm going to improvise long form. So how does McNapier turn on his funny mode versus his serious mode? Because right now McNapier is very serious, right. Very thoughtful, very. But if he had to get up there and perform, how would he turn that out? Oh, I do all kinds of stuff. I mean, I I, I walk to uh, the the theater and I like to kind of say out loud a lot of non sequitur stuff to kind of jumble my mind and get myself out of like an office and bar, you know, mind space where you want to go like safe places. And um, I'll do things like name, I know this sounds really weird, but I will name objects out loud that are around me so that I don't, so that I can, I can draw references easier so I'm not just talking about the same fucking shit all the time. So I kind of do that to try to get myself playful with words. Um, I love to say sentences that make no sense, kind of just 
warms my brain up a little bit. I also like in the book that you were like honest with like, oh, I get in these certain ruts. Oh my God, yeah. I have no problem with that. I get into a lot of ruts um, when I improvise. If I reach for a bottle, if I put my hands together, I'm in my head. Those are my tells. How, how do you get out of a rut? Well, if I'm in the middle of a show, um, I just have to make sure, and this is a broken record from the Annoyance Theater, make a strong choice at the top of the scene. I just have to really put it out there. Uh, and if I'm brave enough, sometimes I'll do a thing where I'll make a sound first and then slide a voice into it. Oh, well, look who's here, like that. You know, so it kind of so just you, makes you, me a little playful. You, you will throw a sound out and just then follow that where that sound is. Yeah. So if you go, oh, uh, I guess I'm like this. Right? Yeah, that's okay. right. And sometimes that gets a little cartoony when I teach it, but it also just really does open your voice up and stuff like that. Now, in the late 90s, uh, as you know, improv theaters, it was very territorial here. Yeah. Uh, and that that has changed, thank God. But some parts of the country, when I travel around, uh, it still exists. Why is it important to let people play at different theaters, be open to different theaters, let them teach at different theaters, the whole cross-pollination. And you talk a little about this in your book. I do. And as a matter of fact, I think it's the very last thing I wrote about in the book. I really wanted that to be the lasting thought. It's true. Right now we have a theater in New York, and you know that was met with a little bit of weirdness when we moved there. Um, and I've been, in Brooklyn. Yeah. And I've experienced in what that way tension and um, I think that I think it's just territorial. I right. think that all of the improv theaters there are somewhat territorial, and I think that that's just a thing. On mm-hmm. um, the air, just kicked on. The, the air kicked on. Yeah. yeah. For our listeners, that is—is uh, is that air or is that heat? I think that's heat here in January. Isn't it? Yeah, twenty degrees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be. But you know, we you do don't get out much. We do, I don't. I live in this theater. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, we do run the air sometimes when there's a lot of people here. Even in the winter, that's yeah. a little exclusive. You're going to get if you're running a theater. Sometimes it's nice in the winter to have some air conditioning because you want to keep it cold for the audiences, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You want to keep it a little chilly for the audiences. You know, Second City ETC, I don't know if you know this, but it's the coldest place on earth. It's the coldest place on earth. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> All right. What the hell were we talking Is about? Is that documented? No, I'm kidding. Okay. It's just so cold. We were talking about the t- uh, oh, yeah. New York. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think that the th- Theaters in New York are going through some of the growing pains that Chicago went through, just mm-hmm. in finding their place and having it be okay that people travel. In Chicago, it's so weird because the culture is so, so much that people do an 8 o'clock show here, do a, hop on a train, do a show at 10 o'clock at I.O., come back down to the playground yeah. for a midnight show. Mm-hmm. And it's just so, such the culture here. And a little bit, it's a little bit like that in New York as well. And I think it's getting a little better. And why do I think it's, why do I think it's important? Well, I think in the book, I kind of mentioned that I think it's silly that there is that kind of competition because it really does help everyone else. It's bizarre to me. Like, if you had a if you had a, if you had a software company and, a, and another software company was going to open up in town, would you throw a big hissy fit and bitch about this other software company and be really threatened about it? I doubt it, because it, it's just a bizarre thing that we do that. Well, another thing that breeds too, and you talk about this in the book. And I, first of all, I, I love this is a mature McNamara. This is not like the first book. Oh, really? It's very thoughtful. Okay. Very, very. Um, really explains it, but also like this is just one way to improv, improvise. I'm not saying this is the right way to improvise. There's a lot of choices out there. Absolutely. But I think sometimes the t- the territorial, it becomes this is one. This is the only way to improvise. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if you look at what you're saying or what one is saying, 
is if, if, if someone believes there's one way to teach improvisation, then you're saying there's only one way to teach human beings how to talk into the air. That's what you're saying. And I think there's probably a lot of different ways of having people improvise with one, one another and talk with one another. Um, there, and I also think that it's ludicrous for anyone in the last 25 years or 30 years to claim that they have the way of improvising because how in the world did Elaine May and Mike Nichols improvise without the Annoyance Theater's way? People learn how to do it before. But uh, I remember when you first started really getting to be known in Chicago and people would come to my class and say, well, Nick says this. And I would be, I'd feel defensive and I'd feel threatened. And, like, oh. and I just, you know, I had to swallow my judgment and then go, okay, where is the similarities here? Where are the similarities yeah. here? And then, of course, eventually I accepted it and, and understood it. But yeah. that was my initial And I, I've had people say, here's what Jimmy Crane says about that. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it happens to me all the time, too. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you handle that? I handle, it, I handle it by attempting to reconcile it because I can find a similarity in mm-hmm. it. You know, in New York, when I teach there, I certainly get a lot of UCB. Uh, and, yeah, but UCB game, right. you know, the game yeah. and stuff. And I can pretty much reconcile that. I don't know if UCB would agree, but I think there's a lot of similarities. I certainly uh, feel as if there's a game in every scene, and mm-hmm. that's what Dell taught right. years and years ago. I feel like that that lives with my notion of there uh, being only one thing that a scene is really centered in, or and you find that and play that game. And mm-hmm. I feel like that I get to that game through a strong choice and point of view at the top of the scene. And that becomes the guideline for the improviser. And I think that that's a way of finding a game. What did you, I never, maybe I asked this before, but what was your experience working with Dell? My experience went up and down with Dell. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the character Dell. And I thought the teacher Dell was questionable sometimes because sometimes, um, like a, a, a typical class would, <clears throat> pardon me, a typical class would start with perhaps two hours of him talking about things he was reading or things he was listening to and whatnot or thoughts he had about the world, which was very interesting. So the character Dell was interesting, but you're in a three-hour class and you just spent two hours not improvising. So as a young improviser, that was sometimes frustrating. Um, when, I, when I first sat in on your classes, the annoyance, uh, um, you, would, you wouldn't talk. You would talk very little. Was that a reaction to what Dell had had? had done? I don't know. That's a great question, though. I think I learned from a lot of teachers that talked a lot. Um, I, I tell you, Jimmy, sometimes I feel like that if I started a class and got everyone on stage and they improvised for my classes of two hours, two hours, and I said nothing, and, I said, and then I said thank you, that that might be as valuable as anything I was going to teach that day. Just from the, what, them having why, they, why? just from them having that experience, just the unfettered experience and the stage time of doing it and all of that. So my classes, I still don't talk a lot, and I I like to, I like to maybe have a class come away with two things in a class, and that's two one things personal or two two like areas that you are looking at today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two things. Um, in 2012, the Annoyance celebrated its 25th anniversary. What has been your most proudest moment? <clears throat> moment? Yeah. Or you maybe have several. <clears throat> What's that? Maybe you have several. Yeah, let me think. I can tell you the thing I'm most proud of is the training here. I, I really do love it. I love all of our teachers, and they, they care about what they're doing, which is 
great. Um, so that's the thing I'm most proud about. Um, but I think there's other moments, like moments I think back at. I, I was really proud of the opening night of Coed Prison Sluts. It was a show that on a Wednesday got five laughs, and in 48 hours we turned it into a show that got 100 laughs and a standing ovation. So that, I was really, really proud of that. Um, I'm really proud of Splatter Theater because that was the very first show that we ever did. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the Real Live Brady Bunch because it was a show that, it was almost a show that educated me in a lot of ways. It was a show that I was very reticent about the first and I was in it and then um, I went up and down about it but I look back on it with a really good feeling. I look back on it uh, when we were, like with a lot of fun because it was a lot of people and a lot of good cheer in the uh, in the Broadway space, and we had a big deck outside. We cooked yeah. out and all yeah. that stuff. So I look back on that as a really fun day. Would you? Because that was there was a lot of tension around. The, there was a lot of fun around the Brady's. There was also a lot of tension. Yeah, that was mixed. Yeah, yeah. Would you have done anything differently? Oh, I hope not. I really okay. hope not. I really hope I would not. And I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad. I did. I'm glad everything went as it did for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And I really am because a lot of great things came from that. Um, it really was a, a great creative launch for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I look at I look at where uh, Andy Richter is and Jane Lynch, and I look at uh, uh, Pat Town and and. Brett and uh, I look at Jill and Faith Soloway and where they're at right now. And what, mm-hmm. I, I, I just think that it's just a great thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I look at where I'm at right now and all of that. And Jennifer, it's a great time. Now uh, you've worked with a lot of people over the years, and they've gone on to be famous: Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, A.D. Bryant, and Vanessa Bayer. And you go out of your way to not exploit that. Why is that important to you? Well, I have to tell you, like, this publisher wanted me to write or get two people to write forwards, one for the reissue of my first book and one for uh, behind the scenes here. And it killed me to ask someone. And I thought to myself, I'm going to ask the the two people I want to ask. I'm going to ask them first if I have to ask them. So I asked them, and gladly they, you know, said yes. But I really, really don't like imposing on people, and I really don't like exploiting that um, I can tell you one of I can tell you something I regret in my life that just killed me years ago I was uh, I directed a really bad film called Fatty Drives the Bus mm-hmm. and uh, you can get that somewhere if you want to look at that uh, but I was really trying to get money for it and I was desperate to get money for it so at that time I was trying to find investors for it and I didn't know much about what they were investing in, but I knew it was a feature film, and I think we set up a little LLC. And I was looking to get people to invest, and I was just thinking of all the people that I knew that might be able to invest in it. So I, through sweat, through fucking fear, and just feeling like this is going to be the worst mistake of my life, I called Mike Myers, and I, Michael Myers, and I asked him for $10,000 to invest in this movie. And he was aghast that I was asking like him to invest money in something. Because before that, he had kind of held the annoyance as a sanctuary and come there and all that. And I hung up the phone, and I felt like shit. And I just made a vow that I'm never going to impose on anyone again. And I'd already felt like that before, and I just don't. 
feel and like I would exploit that, that. The regret was asking him? Yeah, it is. It's one of my biggest regrets. I really hated that I did that. Um, you seem now like um, you're very comfortable with your place here in Chicago. Yeah, and I'm real happy with this, this theater and the location of it and everything. What's changed for you in uh, life? I've become a little more chill, which is good. <laughs> You know, I have, and I, I feel like that. I feel like, thankfully, and this will sound weird. I don't know. You might be able to empathize with this. Thankfully, I feel as if I'm as angry as I ever was about everything in the world, like and about just fucking the fervor in my body, because I really do feel like I'm constantly tripping on anger. But um, I think that's what's, what's changed for me is is stability. Um, Jennifer Estlin has really created this the business of the annoyance in a way that's frightfully amazing like we're in good shape that way and i think that that relaxes me a little bit um i used to i used to just pray for the day that my worries were creative ones and not financial ones because it's so many financial issues for so many years so i think that that's changed for me it's so odd to see you not with a cigarette in your hand i know and not a drink in your hand what about nine years has it been nine years mm-hmm. how, how are you doing with that i'm fine with that um I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I mean, I still want to smoke like three or four day, three or four times a day. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And you had to stop for health reasons, right? No, I stopped because of Connor O'Malley. Do you, tell me the story. You don't know this? No. Um, Connor O'Malley, uh, he used to be pretty heavy, mm-hmm. and um, I made him a, I made him a bet, and everyone around me almost passed out because they couldn't believe I was saying this. But I I made him a bet. I said if you lose 50 pounds i'll stop smoking and everyone around i mean it's like that's like unheard of that i would even imagine not smoking because i was i lie to people and tell them that i smoked three packs a day because i know they don't wouldn't believe me if i told them i actually smoked five which i did for a lot of years and connor said no he said no i wasn't going to do that so a week later i said connor if i stop smoking will you lose 50 pounds and he thought about that for three days, and then he said yes. So that's what then prepared us to go on this track of, uh, of stopping smoking. And Connor now has probably lost 180 pounds, and he looks great, and he runs, and he's wonderful. He's living in New York, and he's doing great. Um, and I haven't smoked in, uh, I think it's been nine years. It's eight or nine years mm-hmm. this past January 3rd. Been... Oh, about two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is but... that still hard for you? No, I mean, that isn't hard for me. It isn't hard for me because I've moderated that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you more productive now that you don't drink and you don't smoke? No, I've, I do drink a bit. Okay. But I've moderated that. Okay. Yeah, but I am. I am more productive now for sure because, because I was drinking all the time. And i got to say something, and please, uh, don't take this the wrong way, but when you would write those newsletters... Mm-hmm. Some of those things, I was like, oh, my God, Mick has got wet brain. I mean, you, they made no sense. And then th- then when I wrote, read this book, I'm like, oh, my God, thank God you, you got it back. Did, has anybody else made that observation? They have, but okay. I, but those always – I've looked at all my newsletters. And they, yeah. they all make sense to me now. I okay. don't know. <laughs> there are a lot of anger in those, though. But they were just so non-sequitur. I, I know. like – you know, sometimes they were, but I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. I love that stuff. I improvise a non like we do skin prop here, and I improvise a non sequitur scene. Mm-hmm. What is your feeling about fame? 
About fame? About fame, yes. I think you mean about... Have you ever been interested in it? I, I know you have. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, if I... Yes, it kills me. Yeah. Well, here's what I think. Okay. I think that um, I feel like I have enough notoriety in my life. Like, I, I appreciate anonymity. And I've been with a lot of famous people that are great, that it's a, it's a weird, different life in a weird way. So I've had situations, a lot of situations, where people just scream my name on the street, and a lot of situations where I'm at a bus stop and someone's looking at me weird, and I look back and they go, are you McNapier? And just a lot of weird shit like that. So I'm fine <clears throat> where I'm at, you know? I think that I think the, the thing that I was always... In my 20s, I was always more worried about was money. And I don't have a lot of money now, but I've got enough money now where I don't have to worry about it so much. Um, so that's how I feel about it. But I also remember when I, you know, back in the 20s, you are a guy that never goes back, doesn't rest on his laurels. What, what is left for you besides the books you've talked about that you'd like to write for you to accomplish? Well, I, I would really like to write an, and direct another film, and just a low-budget independent film because I don't want to leave the earth with Fatty Drives the Bus being the only film I ever did. And that's truly like the only reason. Right. It truly is. Because right. I call that movie film school you okay. know, among friends. But you're in a better place than when you did with Fatty Drives the Bus, oh, I can imagine. Yeah. And I, you know, my problem back then is I was so, a, so much a purist about improvisation, so much, and just so much in that land that I would not write a thing. So that movie is completely improvised. And boy, you know, is that a mistake? To unless you unless you have a very very controlled set of circumstances, and your name's Mike Lee, then you probably don't want to be improvising your movie with a crew and you know all of that money and that machine around you. So would you write? Uh, would you go ahead and write the script? I think I'd love to. I wrote one that I don't like so much. It's multiple locations. I'd love to write something that was in a few locations and just very fun and weird. Um, I did do Bandicoot, me and Josh Walker, which was a real non-sequitur kind of anti-comedy uh, hour-long film a couple of years ago. Um, we've got to wrap this up. This has been great. Thank oh, you thank so you. much, Mick. And at the end of the podcast, we always ask the same question. What piece of advice would you give an improviser starting out today? And boring, but take an acting class along with it, because eventually you're going to become an actor, um, do solo work. Get, get solo work together now more than ever. There's so many more showcases and whatnot. When you're going to need an arsenal of material that you don't want to get uh, together when you learn that you're doing a showcase because it, you want to try that material out in front of an audience before you put it in front of people that matter. McNapier, thank you so much. His book is Behind the Scenes, Improvising Long Form. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I want to thank our guest today, Mick Napier, the founder and artistic director of the Annoyance Theater in Chicago, and also the author of his new book, Behind the Scenes, Improvising Long Form, which is available at Amazon.com and at the Annoyance Theater in Chicago. I love when Mick talked about the things he's most proud of at the Annoyance Theater. 
Uh, I want to thank Jen Eslin and the Annoyance Theater for setting up this uh, interview with Mick. I really appreciate it. And also my producer, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. If you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes, The Art of Slow Comedy, and to sign up for the Improv Nerd blog, all you need to do is go to my website, jimmycorain.com. Also, follow us on social media. We've got a great Improv Nerd fan Facebook page. Is that how they say it? A fan Facebook page or Facebook fan page? Something like that. Just like us because it really helps with my low self-esteem. And then follow us on Twitter at Improv underscore Nerd. And then go to our wonderful YouTube channel, which is Improv Nerd Podcast. All one word. We're lucky to be part of a podcast collective, one of the coolest, unique, innovative podcast collectives out there, and that is Feral Audio. Check out all the great uh, podcasts at feralaudio.com. And I'd like to thank today's three sponsors, the Chicago Improv Festival. For more information and submissions, go to chicagoimprovfestival.org. Femprovisor Fest 16. For more information, go to femprovisorfest.com. And the Improvaru Camping Retreat. For more information and to register, go to postdinnerconvo.com slash Improvaru. And of course, thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island. Yeah. And he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would, it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein. And I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 